Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, what a month we've had. The theme of the month is grace is, and essentially we are defining the concept of saving grace in Christ Jesus. What is grace? We started first of all by saying grace is a revelation, meaning God is not a figment of your imagination, and his salvation plan is not a figment of your imagination either. So you don't just come up with a plan or just agree with popular opinion. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to get to know God and his plan for your life, you're going to have to look into the word of God and to see what is revealed in the word of God. It's that simple. And on Sunday, we shared on grace is a gift. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. It says we are his workmanship, recreated in Christ Jesus to do good works. Emphasis, for by grace are ye saved. Um, through faith, not your, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So, grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. So, we talked about that. The Bible says, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I believe that was a powerful teaching, and I'm sure you were blessed by that. My teaching for today is simply this. Grace is a seal. Grace is a seal. And as we move on, you're going to understand what I mean by that. But first, you know, my mind is drawn to a popular illustration that preachers use to talk about our inheritance in Christ and how important the knowledge of that inheritance is. They would often talk about, I think one of them talked about when he was on a cruise ship, a boat cruise. The journey was supposed to be about two weeks or something like that. And he could barely afford, you know, to be on that boat at all. And so his plan was, uh, any other thing they offer me, any extra package I'm going to, you know, keep to myself and avoid it. He carried some biscuits, some cookies, you know, to eat throughout the journey. And he was going through all that. People were having fun eating and all of that. And he wouldn't eat. Long story short, much later, he discovered, you know, that he didn't have to do that at all. In fact, the food came with the package. As long as you had paid for the ticket, the food was free. Not free exactly, but it came with the package. If you had paid for the ticket, you had paid for the food. But he had gone a long time without eating. You know, and by that time, he had barely, you know, a day or two before, you know, the journey was over. And he, he ate as much as he could, but, well, <laughs> you can't make up for lost time, <laughs> no matter how much you eat. What you, you, the much you can eat is the much you can eat, no matter how determined you are. You know, and as, as this applies, this applies to children of God because many times, we don't realize, you know, what is ours, and we suffer for it, okay? We suffer for it. 
we don't realize who we are, what we have in Christ. And we end up suffering for it. End up suffering for it. So we have a lot to learn. If you don't know what you have, it wouldn't matter what you have. You've heard me say that time and again. Let me re-emphasize that. If you don't know what you have, it wouldn't matter what you have. You'll be like that guy throughout the boat cruise, hungry and having, you know, literally the opportunity to eat whatever he wants, but he did not know. And so he was hungry for no reason. How does this apply to salvation? You know, the story of the prodigal son comes to mind. And we've talked about this story time and again. So many lessons there. But there is one lesson that touches my heart so much. And I want you to think about this. Think about the fact that after that young boy had squandered all his resources, he was thinking to himself, oh, I'd rather just manage here because my dad would never accept me back. And so he literally began to eat pig's food. He was a Jew. And according to the Mosaic law, Jews are not meant to have you know, dealings with pigs because they are unclean. But he found himself... I mean, at the lowest ebb of his life, doing the things that he will never do because he had a preconceived notion about his father and what his father would tolerate, how his father would respond if he goes back. In fact, the only reason he went back was not because he was repentant. He had like a business idea. Oh, yes, I know. I'm not your son anymore. Accept me as one of your servants. He only agreed to go back because he realized even his servants where the servants of his dad were enjoying more than he was. That's why he went back. Only to go back to find that the dad had been waiting for him all the while. The dad wouldn't even allow him to explain and, you know, come up with this his business proposition. Let me be your servant. I work very hard. You know, I have experience, you know, in cleaning stuff. Trained by the best, by you. The dad embraced him, picked up his, you know, his robe, ran towards him, embraced him, threw a party. And this is a huge lesson. Listen, you, it, we're talking about the realm of the spirit here. Not the realm of senses. We're talking about the realm of the spirit. You can feel rejected and not be rejected. All right? You can feel rejected and not be rejected. So, what we learn from the story of the prodigal son is you can feel rejected, be sure that you are rejected, and be wrong. This thing is not a figment of your imagination. It's not a feeling. It's not just a feeling. Truth is truth. It's not just about how you feel. So in your devotion, you can think that there is a disconnect between you and God, and it's literally just all in your mind. It literally just is just all in your mind. I mean, think about all the years that that guy wasted. All the years, all the things that he could have enjoyed. All the privileges that he, he could have enjoyed. All because of his ignorance. He was suffering. You know, there is someone maybe under, under the sound of my voice. There is a mistake you've made in the past, maybe an abortion or something. And you just feel like, you know, your walk with God can never be the same again. It's all in your head. How about you look into the word of God? Can I tell you something? Let the word of God direct your feelings and not the other way around. 
Your feelings is not the word of God. <laughs> the word of God, you know, can stir up a feeling in you, but it's not a feeling. It's an objective reality. So you have to be willing to be diligent to learn the word of God for yourself. Can I tell you something as simple as this is? This is so important. Has it ever happened to you that, you know, you thought someone didn't like you and you were wrong? I mean, literally, a lot of people are experiencing this in their work with God. Some just feel they have an opinion with God that is based on maybe experience, hearsay. When I mean experience, I mean how, how other people have treated them, how maybe their parents who are you know, flawed have treated them. And they expect God to be that way. And God is not that way. Like we started this series, you know, with the, with the theme, grace is a revelation. The only way to know God is through his word. No other way. No other way. And the sooner you learn this, the better. So put aside the preconceived notions. Come to the word of God with humility to learn what he's like. How, what thoughts does he think towards you? This is the only way to grow spiritually. So now, what is your opinion about grace? You know, there are carnal opinions on grace. When I mean carnal opinions, based on human experiences, you know, when we use grace in the office, is maybe we're meant to submit an assignment, a project, maybe in the office or in school, and you didn't meet the deadline. And so your boss says, okay, you have one day of grace. <laughs> you have one day of grace. Grace is not temporary. Grace is not probational. That's not what grace is. Grace is not a second chance. You know, a lot of people say, you're the God of a second chance. You know, and if God is the God of a second chance, you should be afraid. You mean to tell me that you've used only two chances? You've not used up two chances in your work with God? <laughs> if God is the God of a second chance, we are all in trouble. <laughs> He's the God of ten chances and hundred chances and a million chances. That's who he is. That's who he is. He has chosen not to count our iniquities. The Bible says, if the Lord should count iniquities, who shall stand? It's not about saying, don't do it next time. That's not what grace is. It's not about being given a second chance. That's not what grace is. You need to humble yourself. Put aside the preconceived notions. Come to the word of God and see what he has said about you. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 13. Now, this is telling you who you are and what you have received. Don't forget how we started. You need to know who you are and what you've received. It says, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is how, this is how you believed. You heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you trusted the message. You trusted the person of God. He says, in whom also, after that ye believed, 
you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He said, after that ye believed, you were sealed. This is, this, is, this is a conviction to have. So when I believed, I wasn't left without anything. I wasn't left without an assurance. When I believed, something happened. When I heard the message of the gospel and believed it, the Bible says I was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That spirit of grace. You know, we read about him in Galatians chapter 3, you know, on Sunday. When you heard the message of the gospel, you know, and you responded with faith. The Bible talks about that. Let's, let's look at it for a bit. Look at it for a bit. All right. Galatians chapter 3. It says, from verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ had evidently set forth crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received it the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, he said, Received ye the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? When he's talking about receiving the Spirit, what's he talking about? He's talking about being saved. He's talking about being saved. And what did he say about that? He says, did you not receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith? And so I pointed this out to you for a reason. The Spirit is the Spirit of grace. When we talk, talk about, you know, receiving the grace of God, we're actually talking about receiving the Spirit of God. That's the spirit of adoption. And the Bible says, you know, it's a privilege that we are called sons of God. What manner of love, what manner of grace the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I'm saying all this for a reason. Now, he tells you, all right, that that Holy Spirit, that salvation that you have received, that grace that you have received is a seal. It says, after that ye believe. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You know what he called him? He says he is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until the praise of his glory. The earnest of our inheritance. You know, what does that mean? I've explained this time and again. But you see, this is a classic sermon, a kind of sermon that you have to repeat again and again because, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you've heard it, you, you, you have to be strengthened in this regard. He says, he is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. And I said, what does that mean? That word in the Greek actually means a pledge given to ratify a contract. And this is what I'm saying. For instance, um, actually, this word was used in, it was a real estate term in those days, earnest money is what it was called. And this is how it works. If you say you want to buy a piece of land, and maybe I'm not ready to sell the piece of land now. Not that you don't have the money, but I'm not ready to sell the piece of land. But you want to make a commitment. You want to make a commitment. And I say, okay, no problem. You can give me earnest money. Earnest money of maybe... 
200 million. Let's say the property is worth 300 million. But the thing about earnest money is this. When the property is finally available, if you don't keep your end of the bargain and pay the rest of the money, I don't return your money to you. Your earnest money, you know, it's just like in many admissions, cases of admission into the university, you know, there is an acceptance fee that you are required to pay. Such that even if you don't, you change your mind, you don't want to go to the school anymore, you're not going to get that money back. That's how earnest money works. That's how earnest money works. Here is something that you must recognize. When God calls the Holy Spirit earnest, he's saying something very profound, something very powerful. He's saying, in the strict terms of the word, in real estate terms of those days, I'm giving you the Spirit of God as guarantee such that if I don't keep my end of the bargain to give you the rest of the inheritance, the new body, an eternity with me in that new body, I'm going to lose the third part of the Trinity. You know, as big as that sounds, as lofty as that sounds, and of course that's impossible, not because God definitely is going to keep his end of the bargain. He's just, of course, it's an impossible, impossible thing to happen that there won't be any third part. You know, but it just tells you how big it is that God will call the Holy Spirit earnest. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And you see, in those days, anything you called earnest is usually more valuable than what is promised, or at least as valuable. You have to understand. And so my illustration is not even perfect because I talked about 200 million and all of that. All right. Let me use another illustration. I'm supposed to pay you 10 million for something. And for some reason... I do not have access to my finances. And I tell you, I guarantee I'm going to pay you this time next month. And you say, well, talk is cheap. I need earnest money or I need earnest resource. And so I give you a house worth 200 million. All right. And say, you know what? When I pay you the money that I owe you, I get my house back. That's usually how NS works. You know, a guarantee so strong, so huge, you know, that every doubt about my fulfillment of my pledge is eradicated. You have enough security, enough assurance. You need to know how far God has gone to assure you that nothing is going to tamper with your salvation. And it's very insensitive, it's very ignorant for any Christian you know, not to take into cognizance all that he has done. He has gone out of his way to show you he's serious about what he has said about your salvation and how secure you ought to be in it. Let me give you an example, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. We have a lot to cover today. In Genesis chapter 38, this is not a good example because, you know, Judah promised someone, someone he shouldn't have promised. I'm just saying... (laughs) You know, he promised someone. He said, I was, I'm going to give you a kid. What's a kid? You know, a baby goat. I'm going to give you a, a kid from my flock. And she said, well, wh- what pledge will you give me? 
until you send it. He asked for earnest, an earnest resource. And then he said, okay, here is my signet. Here is my bracelet. Here is my staff. Those things were very valuable in those days. This, these were items that kings used. You see, this, this was a king's identity. A king's staff is as important as the king himself. A king's signet is as important as the king himself. With the signet, you can pass anything into law. It's like a checkbook. It's like a checkbook. And so because of the child of a goat, because of a kid that he promised from his flock, he gave up his bracelet and expensive jewelry. He gave up his staff. He gave up his signet. These things outweigh what he's promised in value. They outweigh what he promised in value. And so, usually the idea of earnest is going overboard to settle the person you are contracting, you know, doing business with. Going overboard to settle your business partner, you know, and eradicate any form of doubt, any question about, you know, your willingness and your readiness to meet up to your end of the bargain. So when God calls the Holy Spirit earnest, he's telling you, as a believer, there should be no doubt, no question, no question at all, no objection, you know, when it comes to how secure your salvation is. Grace is a seal. He has given us security. There are other texts that talk about this. Oh, this is so good. Hallelujah. This is so good. Look at what 2 Corinthians says, chapter 5, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. It says, Now he that had wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who had given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Why am I reading this to you again? You know, it's the same thing Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says. You know, because out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every truth shall be established. You know, and even if it's Paul who said it again and again, you know, if he said it twice, oh, that's emphatic. He says, he has given us the earnest of his spirit. Meaning, when I have the Holy Spirit, I never get to doubt my salvation I never get to doubt my eternal destination. This is so simple and so important. Let me take that again. When I receive the Holy Spirit, every doubt about my salvation and my eternal destination is eradicated because the Holy Spirit is earnest until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's who he is. The Holy Spirit is not just for speaking in tongues as powerful and as wonderful as that is. The Holy Spirit is God's symbol of assurance. That the moment, you know, you're asking the question, is this guy saved or not? The moment you can ascertain the fact that he has the Holy Spirit, every doubt is out of the way immediately. Immediately. You are, you, I mean, you are sure beyond reasonable doubt. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit symbolizes. So you can be Peter. You know, who has the wrong theology? In your theology, according to your theology, only the Jews can be saved. But as you are preaching in Cornelius' house, 
the Holy Spirit descends, you know, on everyone who hears the word. And everybody in that house is saved. Automatically, you know you were wrong. Your theology was wrong. Because, like he said, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. If they have the Holy Spirit, that's God's seal of approval. That's God's seal of approval. As long as I have the Holy Spirit, I know I'm approved of God. I'm a child of God. That's what the Holy Spirit represents. And that doubt is out of the way forever. You have to understand this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Talking about God. It says, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Oh, we have that earnest in our hearts. The earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Hallelujah. He has sealed us. 2 Corinthians 1, 22. He has sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit. You know what I'm doing? I'm giving you vocabulary for confession. Vocabulary for confession. Change your confession. You talk like this. You say, he has sealed me. I'm sealed of the Lord. Hey, he has given me the earnest of the Spirit in my heart. The evidence of heaven <laughs> is the Spirit within. The evidence that I'm a citizen of heaven is the Spirit within. Hallelujah. <laughs> Glory to God. You know, it's just like when you pay you know, you book a flight online. Even if it's online, you're not at the airport yet. But then you're giving your ticket. All right? You're giving your ticket, you know, when I, when I needed to travel to the UAE, to Dubai. After my assistant went through all the processes for me, a mail, a, my visa was sent to my mail. My ticket was sent to my mail. And I just saw everything there. And I started to tell all the people close to me, oh, on this date, I'm out of the country. I'm out of the country. And I walked to the airport without any fear, without any concern that I, I, I wasn't going to go. In, in fact, I packed my bags before I left. The Holy Spirit is that ticket, that visa, that assurance that God has given to you. That you're going to be with him for eternity. Listen. Can I tell you something? God offers you assurance. The devil is trying to bring fear. The sad reality is. If you choose. Not to believe the provision of God. No, nothing else can be done. Nothing else can be done. There are a lot of teachings out there. You know. That have made people so scared. Believers are so scared. And God has gone out of his way to give you assurance. You know, it's just like that insecure girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, some boyfriends who are always afraid that the girlfriend will leave. Maybe she's cheating. Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to over the phone? <laughs> you know, you're never going to be happy. You know, no matter how the guy or the lady says, I love you, I love you, you know, and they've proven it many times. You know, some people just never get it. You can't help a person who has chosen to remain fearful. I want to challenge you today. Fling fear out of the window. God has given you assurance. Accept what he has given you. Refuse to doubt. Hallelujah. Say that with me, I refuse to doubt. <laughs> 
I just want to read this. You know, I, I preached on this extensively when I was teaching about resurrection. You know, the believer's hope of re- resurrection. I think the title of the sermon is Jetpack. You know, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. The Bible says this. It says, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwells in you. So here's the point. You need to know who the spirit is. This is the agent of the resurrection when it comes to the testimony of Jesus. It is by the spirit that God raised Jesus from the dead. By the spirit. You have to understand this. And so God is offering you, he's promising you eternal life. He's saying even if you die, you will rise again. And you will rise into a new body and live forevermore with him. And then he goes ahead to give you the same spirit by which Jesus was raised back to life. What other assurance do you need? And so Paul says, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also, also be so powerful. You see, this is the concept of baptism, that I get to participate in his testimony. As he was raised from the dead, I also will be raised from the dead. How do I know? The agent of the resurrection in Jesus is in me. This is so simple and so powerful. This is so simple and so powerful. When Jesus was going to die, he had assurance. He knew he would rise again. He said it. And by prophecy, he was to rise again. You will not leave your holy one in hell. You you will not suffer your holy one to see corruption. You not leave my soul in hell, suffer your holy one to see corruption. That's, that's a prophecy. You also should have assurance. Praise the Lord. Jesus, I mean, could willingly go to the grave, go to the cross, because of the word of the Father. What's your perspective about death? <laughs> What's your perspective about death? Of course, you shouldn't. You see, nobody who subscribes to the Lordship of Jesus will take his own life. That's something you need to know about suicide. When you become a child of God, your life is not yours to take. Don't you understand? He gave his life for you so that you can live for him. (laughs) Your life is not yours to take. And, you know, this is a supernatural deviation, maybe to bless someone out there. Someone needed that word. All right. But at the same time, I have a different perspective to death as all, as from unbelievers, a very different perspective to death. This is so important because I have assurance. Assurance in the Holy Ghost. He's my seal. Hallelujah. He's my seal. My Another thing I want to say, you know, when you talk about seal, he's simply a brand. You see, when any manufacturer manufactures a product, they put a brand on that product so that the world, you know, will know that they were the ones who manufactured that product. The Holy Spirit is the brand of God. God's announcement to the world that we belong to him. 
That's why he calls us, he calls the Holy Spirit the seal. Do you understand? Seal, the brand. We are branded as belonging to God by the Holy Ghost. Let me take that again. We are branded as belonging to God by the Holy Ghost. That's so simple and so powerful. So we have the mark of the Spirit. <laughs> I said this because I'm heading somewhere. And because of that mark, all right, you know, when you see an iPhone anywhere, if, if you know the product well, you can tell if it's authentic because it has a brand, all right? And by the, same, by the Holy Spirit as well, when you, you can tell that anybody's salvation is authentic by the Holy Ghost. It's that simple. And so God has given us a brand. Just imagine an iPhone insecure. Oh, am I really sure I'm from Apple? Are you like, <laughs> well, that's going to be very silly, isn't it? All right. So I just want to show you two texts that I usually show people when I teach on this. And this is going to bless you. Just vocabulary for your confession. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. I can teach on this for at least 30 minutes, but I'm just going to breeze past it. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it will bless you, and then we'll move on. Philippians 1.6, Paul speaking, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which had begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to say that with me. Say, I'm confident of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in me will perform it unto the day of Jesus. You know, so think about this. This is the provision of God in salvation. A lot of people, you know, learn salvation by observation. By what people said about it. How about you read the word of God? God wants you to be confident. You know, some other person is preaching. Oh, don't be so sure. Don't be so You know, they think that it is a sign of holiness and piety. To be so unsure. When you ask someone, are you going to heaven? I don't know. I don't know. I hope. I hope. That's not the word of God. Paul says to be confident of this thing. He who has begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of Christ. The Bible teaches assurance of salvation. To be assured. To be confident. Because you have a seal. By the Holy Spirit. You have been brought into assurance. That's assurance. Grace is a seal. He who has begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of Christ. Meaning until Christ comes. No backsliding for me. The Bible says the path of a just man is as a shining light that shines brighter and brighter. Unto a perfect day. Meaning the coming of Christ will meet me prepared. Will meet me in ministry. Will meet me effective. Will meet me winning souls. I'm going to get stronger in charismatic ministry. I'm going to get stronger in the manifestations of the fruits of the spirit. That's my life. He who has begun a good work in you. You know what's interesting? It wasn't even Paul testifying about himself. You know, of course, you will say, oh, he's Paul. He's a man of God. You can say that about himself. But it's a totally different thing for you to say that about others. Paul was saying that about the church in Philippi. You know, there are different types of pastors in our day. There are some pastors who think it's their duty 
to always, you know, scare the congregation. There's something about, you know, and there are proper teachings on brokenness, you know, but some people subconsciously use it to rob their ego. They feel like they've done well when the people are crying and rolling on the floor. It's a proof of ministry for many people that the people are sad. Ah, I preached today, you know, and when, when you're preaching on salvation, especially when you make an altar call, what is called an altar call, and nobody responds. You know, some people don't like that at all. You know, they, and, and, you know and then they begin to say all kinds of things until even the people who were, who were sure before they gave the church, they're not sure anymore. <laughs> you know, they begin to say all kinds of things. Don't pretend he's watching you in the secret, you know, and, and all of that. You know, and I believe in passionate evangelism and all of that. But we must make sure that we communicate the message the right way. Paul strengthened the believer's assurance of salvation. He says, I am confident concerning you. I'm making a boast of the work of God in your life. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. I made up my mind years ago, I'm going to be a preacher like Paul. I'm going to strengthen people's assurance of salvation, not take it away. All right, not take it away. Hallelujah. And that's so powerful. Jude verse 24. We say Jude verse 24 because Jude has just one chapter. If it makes you happy, you can say Jude chapter 1 verse 24. There's no task force to arrest you for that. Amen. (laughs) Jude verse 24. He says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is the vocabulary <laughs> of the learned believer. Some others, you know, are singing that song, don't let me be tossed away like the wind, carry me home. Do you understand? Listen, there are a lot of well-meaning songs that don't portray proper revelation in Christ. You know, when some, of, some others are saying, God, don't let me fall. As if he would, if you don't cry, <laughs> you know. Some others are confessing what the word of God says. Unto him who is able to keep me from falling. To present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I'm making a boast in his ability. Not in my ability to keep myself in terms of, you know, moral excellence. But in his ability to keep me. I am kept. I'm kept by God. What a confession to make. Making a boast in the ability of God. The Holy Ghost is your seal. Change your confession. Change your confession. Don't refuse to stay ignorant. Because technically speaking, nobody makes heaven. <laughs> nobody makes heaven. Because, you know, the, the, the phraseology suggests, you know, works consciousness as if there was something you did. You know, the same way you make it in life, you make heaven. <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. All right. First of all, there is something terribly wrong about the phraseology. And then secondly, the people who are going to be in heaven, they already are in heaven right now. And this is what I mean. Only those who have heaven in them will enter heaven. Before you can enter a place called heaven, heaven must enter you. 
You have to understand that. And the moment heaven enters you, you have no doubt that you are going to enter heaven. It's that simple. It's that simple. Let me explain this. Okay, let me just read this to you. Because I am still going to talk about the mark of the beast. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. You know what he says? He says, for our conversation, you know, that's KJV for you. What does conversation mean? He's, he mean, he's, not, he's not talking about conversing. That's the way he's, he's not talking about talking. The Greek word there actually means our citizenship. Our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. This is so powerful. It says our citizenship is in heaven. So we are citizens of heaven. So when I think about heaven and making heaven, as people say, and all of that, my perspective is this. The moment I believed the gospel, I became a citizen of heaven, and I am here as an ambassador. No ambassador is worried that if he has to go back to his country, they won't accept him. That's not the way it works. I'm already a citizen of heaven. I made it into heaven the day the Holy Ghost came into my heart. I'm a citizen of heaven already. This is so important. So I am an ambassador of heaven on earth. I'm not trying to make heaven. I belong there. I'm from heaven. I'm, I'm sent from there. I talk like someone from heaven. I walk like someone from heaven. My identity, my DNA is heaven. And I like this. It says from whence, ah, glory to God. It says, from whence we look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not expecting the coming of Christ to know if we're going to get to heaven or not. We are in heaven, <laughs> seated with him right there and anticipating his coming. He says, from whence. But this is, this is our theological standpoint. This is, this is our station in the Lord. From heaven. It's our consciousness. It is from this consciousness of our station as citizens of heaven that we wait for the coming of Christ. That's our perspective to the coming of Christ. Our perspective to the coming of Christ is, oh, we are ambassadors and our king is coming. Not, oh, he's coming. I hope he's going to come for me. No. Praise the Lord. You know what I'm doing? I'm renewing your mind. Renewing your mind. I have the mark of the Spirit. I belong to Jesus. And now, we want to talk about the mark of the beast briefly. If you don't have a proper understanding of the mark of the Spirit, you have no business studying the mark of, of the beast. It's misplaced priority to be so fascinated, you know, with the mark of the beast when you don't have the mark of the spirit. This is so important, so crucial. And I, I want to, that's why I started on this note. To talk about, you know, the mark of the spirit, the seal of the spirit. You know. Well, just... For the benefit of those who don't know where the concept of the mark of the beast is taken from, I'll read this to you, just two verses, 
I wish I could read more, but you know, we don't have the time for that. So, Revelations chapter 13, verse 16. Revelations chapter 13, verse 16. Revelations 13, 16. It says, For he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bound, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man may buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. And the Bible tells us clearly that that number will be 666. All right. And there's been a lot of talk about this in the body of Christ. And someone says, okay, why am I talking about this? Very simple, because I'm your pastor. So just take what I'm about to say as a pastor to congregation talk, all right? This is especially for the people that I pastor. Because, I mean, people have literally reached out to me to find out, you know, what I think about all that is going on. And, of course, I don't expect you to have an opinion based on what you read in the blogs. As a local church, let's look into the Word of God together, all right? And let me tell you something. We have a lot to learn in the body of Christ. The Bible talks about all of us coming in the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God. A lot of people don't know what that means. If unity of faith will be possible, we have to be open to scholastic biblical conversations. A lot of people are just so averse to that idea. When a man of God you know, comes out to share his opinion, whether you think he is right or wrong, you shouldn't be angry he spoke out. Listen! And it turns out there might be something to learn. Somebody, you know, the Lord told me this years ago, may not know 99 things, but will know the one thing you desperately need to learn. This is how to grow. Always be open to learn. There's always something to learn. And, and I, I just see some people making some careless comments. You know, can't you disagree respectfully? Must you even always make your opinion public? Nobody that I train, you know, is careless, you know, with utterances like that, especially when your pastor has not talked about it. You know, there's some people, it's easy to know people who are not pastorable or who are not properly taught. Always going ahead. We, we must learn to move as a body. I'm not saying you can't have a mind of your own. If it is a subject we have already trashed out in church, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. But remember, you have a pastor. This is so important. So, take this as my own honest biblical opinion. First of all, let me just say, say this heads up. This is not the end of the world. All right. I say that respectfully. You all, you all know, you know, the level of respect I have for the man of God who has talked about this. And as much as possible, I want to address this independent of his opinion. I just want to share this as something, as a topic that has arisen and must be talked about. 
So it's so important. So this is not the end of the world. And as I go on, I will tell you why I believe so. However, anybody who has any percentage of discernment at all should know that there are, there, there are similitudes and that all the events, you know, the, the playing out right now should at least help us see what was theoretical. We're seeing how practical it will be. It's, think about it. Just one outbreak, the whole world stood still. The whole world. More than almost 1.5 million people infected with this virus in about three months. It doesn't take time. It does not take time. You see, the world doesn't have the fortitude that people give it credit for. It can all end. That's a huge lesson for us to learn. It can all end. It won't take time. So if you thought about the end of the world and you just thought this one biblical theory, at least see. And if it annoys you that anybody brings up the conversation of the end of the world now, maybe you are ignorant. Because guess what? The Bible does warn. Jesus himself warns. You know, can I tell you something? When the end finally comes, people will be mocking also. I don't believe that the end is now for, for very clear biblical reasons. But people will be teasing too. What is he saying? When people wonder, this is the end, some will say, what's he saying? That's, that's the fabric, fabric of biblical prophecy. It's, it's always been like that. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 from verse 36. Matthew chapter 24 from verse 36. Jesus is speaking. He says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah, he actually means Noah, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving to marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the son the coming of the Son of man be. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Are you seeing what I'm saying? So when the end actually comes, people will be saying, you know the end, what's it, what's it saying? You're saying rain. You have to understand there are a lot of similarities. When rain, when Noah said rain is going to fall and destroy the earth, rain had never fallen on the earth before. Do you know that? It fell for the first time at that flood. So, I mean, you think of what they thought about all they had to say. Water is going to fall from the sky, you foolish man. Let's party on. Noah was trying to get them to quarantine. <laughs> I had to. <laughs> no. No one was trying to get them to quarantine, to isolate, <laughs> and they won't. 
until the flood came. So I'm just saying, when somebody, you know, has, you know, an end of the world twist to this, don't just throw away the baby with the bathwater. Think deeply. This is the time to ponder, you know, this, the gospel of the earth. What can we do with this message? Because he's coming again. Listen, he may not be coming in 2020. Jesus may not be coming in 2020, but he's coming soon. Don't you understand? And that's what I'm saying. So if you just totally, you know, scorn the entire idea, you are wrong. This is important. This is the time where the body of Christ will unite to push out this message and say, see what is happening. This world is going to end one day. Make no mistake. With due respect to all your investments in institutions, and they will all crumble. Just one virus. Think about what one virus has done. Has no respect for money, for political class. Praise the Lord. So, I, I, I just want to point that out. That the end will actually, you know, have the same similitudes. People will be saying, what is that preacher saying? All right. And then it will happen. But mind you, and that's what I will talk about this later. When it happens, you have to understand, the believers will already be in the ark. Anybody who has an end-time view that neglects this reality is wrong. The believers will already be in the ark when it happens. I'm, I've gone ahead of myself a little, but let's talk about this. Also, when, you know, the fascination with 5G is interesting, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, and I don't even have the desire to be. I have other interests, other priorities in my life right now. But there is, there is something you have to consider. Non-Christians, some of them scientists, have asked questions about 5G. Forget the man of God, you know, and his opinion on this. Think about this objectively. A lot of people are asking questions, and yes, I've read materials that have explained and said 5G cannot harm. In fact, one material says it cannot penetrate the skin. You know, the radiation cannot penetrate the skin. It can't harm the body and all of that, and all of that sounds brilliant. But the question is this. It's a question of motive. You know, if, if this was a legal case, a legal investigation, is there any reason for the tech companies to want to lie? Oh, yes. If it, if it could harm people a little, is there any reason why they would want to lie about it? Yes. Let me explain what is happening. You have to understand... The world will never be the same again. Let me ask you this before I make my point. Where is... The, look at phone technology. I just remembered I'm live, so I don't, I don't want to mention some names. But there were many phones that looked so formidable, so ingenious, just years back that are nowhere to be found anymore. You have to understand how volatile the tech industry is. The competition is stiff. Nobody wants to be left behind. And the competition is so stiff that I can tell you categorically, 
there is every tendency for them to neglect potential health threats. I'm telling you that. Because think about it. Okay, if they co indeed come up, I know some people are working, with, uh, working on chips, for instance. And I've even seen um, simulations, you know, on that. A lot of people, some people already have these chips. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. And so, imagine it becomes mainstream. And people actually carry their phones in their palm. What do you think will happen to the great phone companies that never caught the wave? They didn't catch the wave on time. There is a low-key desperation. Nobody wants to be left behind. You have to understand what is happening. If they miss this move, the bankruptcy, streets. Because this is, this is one, one technology that a lot of other tech companies would take a very heavy hit if they are left behind. You have to understand this. So, I believe if you see someone, you know, trying to be skeptical and saying, okay, what health, you know, precautions are there? Don't just be quick to say, he doesn't know what he's saying. No. <laughs> Let us ask very well. You know, I read the reports of two people who claimed to have fallen sick because of 5G radiations. And I'm not trying to put another conspiracy theory there. You may say their reports are false, but I'm saying it is worth investigation. That's all I'm saying. Okay, yes, they said it can't harm us. Quite all right. Let us examine the claims well. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying 5G is connected with coronavirus and all of that. That's not all. I'm just picking the points individually for now. And if I've been following what I'm saying, this is so important. I'm going to connect all the points together with this. Now, I want to ask you this. What is the mark of the beast going to be like? What do you think it's going to be like? You know, in the old movies... Some old movies, they would just write the number, 666, on people's hand, and they say, ah, because of the tattoo, they become irredeemable. Do you think that's what it's going to be like? What is it about a skin print that will make people irredeemable, that you now preach the gospel to them, and they still have the presence of mind to understand what you're saying and to believe it, but they cannot be saved because they have a tattoo? Is that what you think? this mark is going to be. Can I tell you something? And that's why I said we should learn from this. Two years ago, I did a teaching on something like this. Not on something like this, on this. And I explained it, and I was actually very moved. You know, when I discovered that in, in the popular, you know, teaching on the whole 5G connection now, I could still see a very sound biblical understanding, you know, of how that mark is going to play out. And that's why it, I'm, I'm just saying the body of Christ should at least listen. The conclusion by your own estimation might be wrong. But there is something about how this thing will play out eventually that is being shared and people are not paying attention. And so let me just share a few thoughts with you. And I don't really have the time
to go into this in depth. All right? Because this is a thought that I shared in an entire camp meeting. I want to share in a few minutes. So pay attention. The Bible talks about Noah. All right? Let me see if I can read a few things to you. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Chapter 2 from verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. The Bible says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the earth and the ungodly. Now, Here's what I'm saying. The question I want to ask you is this. Or, or, let, me, let me not put it as a question. Is it, it's very interesting how these two stories appear to be connected. I don't think it's an accident at all that the Bible talks about the angels that kept not their first estate. And then next off, it talks about Noah. Because this appears to follow the order in Genesis chapter 6. A lot of people have not paid attention to the fact that the Bible starts the story of Noah with the story of fallen angels. I mean, it literally tells us that the sons of God came to be with daughters of men. All right. They had bodies. Okay, angels can manifest in you know, physical bodies. All right. You know, and then they had affairs with women and they gave birth to giants. And it is from there that the Bible tells us, you know, about the story of Noah. And all of a sudden, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. We know where they came from. And also after that, when the sons of God uh, came into the daughters of men and bare children, and they became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown, the Bible says, and God saw the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every imagination of thoughts in his heart were evil continually. You have to see the connection here. There's a connection between, you know, the fallen angels, the, 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 the procreation, you know, that took place, and how the world came to be. There is a direct connection. Think about it. Noah and his family were the only righteous people. They were the only people who believed the message of, of Christ, of God, in their generation. Isn't that rare? There has never been... How many times in the entire Bible did you see a generation like that? How many times? Just one family? Second Peter chapter 2 that we read said he was a preacher of righteousness. So as he was building the ark, he was actually actively, you know, reaching out to people, telling them about the righteousness of God. It took him 60 years to build the ark. In 60 years of preaching, Noah had no convert. Why? Do you know what that means? Preaching for 60 years, no single person believed, only you and your family, something was wrong. And I don't really have enough time to delve into this. But what we can see clearly here is what makes 
fallen angels, fallen angels, specifically the fact that they are unredeemable. We see that rubbing up on, on mankind as they came to be with mankind in procreation, the children also became irredeemable. Why is it that Noah could preach for 60 years and no single convert? Something had happened. Something had happened. So now, there are giants on the earth. The human race was threatened. In fact, some history books, not some, a good number, all right, actually say this, the, the Bible called these fallen angels, these giants, men of renown. They began to dominate mankind. And there are funny reports, you know, on the things that they did. They, they were a lot bigger, oppressive, wicked. All right. And a good number of theologians believe, and I believe along with them, that it got to a point where only Noah and his family were the only, the only pure humans left. Think about it. Why would he preach 60 years? No one believed. There were the pure humans left. And listen to this. So the flood of Noah was not the destruction of mankind. It was the preservation of mankind. Did you hear what I just said? It was not the destruction. God was not destroying man. He was protecting man. If he wanted to destroy mankind, he would have destroyed everybody. Or he wouldn't have given any prior notice. But, you know, for 60 years, Noah, it wasn't a secret what Noah was doing. The people just didn't care. There was something in them that hindered them. Why is it that all the giants in the Bible were bad? Have you noticed that? First of all, how could there be giants? And then why were they bad? And that's why you will notice, you see, all the places, you know, someone says, God is so wicked. Why would he tell the children of Israel to enter into some lands and annihilate everybody Kill everybody, including children. The God of the Bible is a wicked God. And I don't have enough time to delve into this. I'm, I'm touching a lot of things that are answering a lot of deep questions in the hearts of people. Pay attention to this. But one thing you will notice that is common about all the places that the children of Israel were asked to go in and annihilate, annihilate everybody, was this. They had giants. Have you remembered, you know, when they sent spies to the promised land? What did they come back to say? There are giants in the land. But there, are people, there were countries that were even more wicked than God spared. When Israel was, you know, being enslaved by the Egyptians, what did God say? He told Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may save me. He didn't try to kill all the Egyptians. He didn't even try to take over their land. All he was saying is, let my people go. The Egyptians did more wickedness to the children of Israel than all these other guys. Why did God spare them? Are you getting the rationale here? But all these other places, they had contaminated humanity. They were not human beings. They were not. And that's a whole teaching for another day. So it was the preservation of mankind and not the destruction of mankind. This is so important. But there's a reason I'm sharing this with you. The, the, the question is, 
about the mark of the beast, right? The mark of the beast has to be something that makes human beings come to a position of irrationality where they can no longer hear the gospel and believe it. And if we saw, you know, this kind of attitude, you know, when fallen angels came to be with people. But can I tell you something? In the last days, that same genetic reaction eh, will be genetically engineered. It will be through sex. It will be through technology. And there are a lot of explanations. There's, a, there's another guy named Nimrod, you know, in the Bible who did something like that, you know, and all of that. But in, in the last days, you're going to see something like that. And this is how it is going to work. This is what I believe. From my studies, this is what I believe. They are going to try to offer what the gospel freely offers. You know, I saw a report you know, where scientists are working on you know, some scientific formulas to make men live forever. You know, and all of that. And, you know, the funny thing is, these things have already been portrayed in movies. You know, in movies like Spider-Man, the villain is always one brilliant, innocent scientist who just tries one scientific mixture, and then the mixture went out of hand. He took the mixture. He became bigger and irrational and wicked. You're going to see things like that. You're going to see things like that. So it's going to very likely come through a chip, and by the time you, you know, take that chip, you could be controlled. And now, this is the thing. This is the thing. If there is going to be such technology, it's going to be hinged very strongly on the internet. You have to understand this. You have to understand this. And so even if someone says the 5G is what is making people sick, I don't believe that. That the, there is a virus out there. Make no mistake. <laughs> All right? There's a virus out there. You know, but when you say... When someone is making a connection between the sudden push for the internet, the sudden push for chips, and how that I believe that this, all right, is a testing for an infrastructure. They might not even know that that's what they are doing. Don't forget we're dealing with spirits. We are coming to a time where it is becoming technologically practicable what the Bible has already predicted. That's what I'm trying to tell you. We're coming close to that time. And so when someone is talking about it, do you understand? He might have been a little extreme, but don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. Listen. Listen. So now they're working on chips, and then there's a push for 5G that is going to be fast and everything. And that's what's going to happen. I don't even believe it's 5G. I believe there is, there's going to be more technological advancements, like I said. And here is the thing. The main reason why this is not the first, first of all, the notion that 5G is the one killing people is not true. The symptoms, even the people who claimed you know, to have been affected by 5G, the symptoms are very different. The symptoms of a person exposed to radiation and the symptoms you know, of coronavirus are very different. The symptoms of coronavirus are, I mean, close to the symptoms of a, of a flu. And the symptom of radiation is very different. So that's, that's besides the point. 
But the main thing is this. Like I said earlier, the flood is not going to be rained on the earth until the believers are in the ark. Everyone who has a proper teaching on eschatology, the study of end times, knows that the believers will be raptured away first. You can't, you can't preach, you know, a sermon warning believers not to take any mark of the beast. <laughs> Do you understand? It's against everything biblical. You want to tell that to a believer? Okay, where did it say that a person who is not a believer takes the mark of the beast, and he can no longer be saved. Different thing. But you're warning believers not to take the mark of the beast. What are we talking about here? What does the Bible really say? The Bible talks about this. Look at 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. From verse 3. I'll move quickly because of time. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except they come and fall away. He's telling you signs of the end time. Falling away first. And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposed and exalted himself above all that is God, all that is worshipped, so that he, as God, seated in the temple, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that which he might be revealed, you know, withholded that he might be revealed in, in his time. He says, so there is something, all right, or a system, and let me put it this way, a system that is withholding the Antichrist from being revealed. What is that same system? It's the church. Until we go, he cannot come. Can I tell you something? The only way the Antichrist can be successful on the earth is when the Holy Spirit has raptured away all the saints. That's the only way. That's the only way. Will the Holy Spirit be active, you know, after that time? Oh, yes, you know, because some people will still be converted. But the influence will not be as strong as now when everybody has that free, open invitation to receive the gospel. And it is because, you know, of the space, prophetic space that the Holy Spirit is going to give the Antichrist, that he'll be able to carry out his, you know, his mission. So I'm just saying this, believers perturbed by this, relax, 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 until we go. In fact, even if you don't understand all this, you don't need to know about 5G, you don't need any knowledge of technology. How do we know that the end has not come? Because I'm here. Did you hear what I said? We know that the end has not come because we're here. We're here. We're, how can you mention end times when we're here? We're here. We're here. Until we go, the end will not come. You have to understand this. Glory to God. We have a seal. You know, and it's very interesting. A lot of people, and I'm going back to where I started. Uh, grace is a seal now. All right, I've gotten your curiosity on that out of the way. So, but a lot of people tend to have more faith in the mark of the beast than in the mark of the spirit. They believe that when you receive the mark of the beast, you cannot be saved. You are irredeemable. 
But they believe that with the mark of the Spirit, you can still go to hell. Isn't that interesting? If a person with the mark of the beast can never make heaven, how about the person with the mark of the Spirit? Do you have more faith in the mark of the beast than in the mark of the Spirit? That's the question I want to have for you. I have for you. Do you have more faith in the mark of the beast than in the mark of the Spirit? He says we are sealed. We have the seal of the Spirit. Can a person with the mark of the Spirit receive the mark of the beast? <laughs> no space. No space. Glory to God. No such chip will walk on a believer with the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. You, you have to understand this. You have to understand where your faith lies. When we talk about assurance of salvation, just the same way the people with the mark of the beast have assurance of damnation. You, you are damned. Can you, who has the mark of the Spirit, have some assurance of salvation? Jude, verse 24 says, Unto him that is able to keep me from falling and to present me faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Philippians 3.20 says, Our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. Ah, glory to God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. Oh, glory to God. Do you believe that? Oh, I'm a citizen of heaven. Glory to God. I'm a citizen of heaven. Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Let me show you something. Second Peter. Second Peter. Glory to God. Glory to God. Did I say second Peter? I mean first. First Peter. Chapter 1 from verse 3. I, I, I just share this with you on the round off. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy had begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So listen, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead has given us hope. You see what I said? We are partakers in his testimony. All right. By the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it says to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled listen do you what do you think about this this is this is a description of your station in the lord you've been begotten into a lively hope to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that faded not away reserved for you in heaven oh glory to god i have an inheritance it's incorruptible incorruptible undefiled and it is waiting, reserved, reserved. So this is this is this should increase my ownership quotient. All right, I I listen. I already have stuff in heaven waiting. Hallelujah! It, it's it's my home. It's my home. And see what it says next. It says talking about you. It says who are kept by the power of God. You know somebody say, Ah, Father, keep me to the end, Father. I am kept by God. Look at what he says. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be re revealed in the last time. I am kept by the power of God unto the last time. Kept by the power of God to be revealed in the last time. Oh, confess that right now. I am kept by the power of God to be revealed in the last day. Kept by the power of God. 
kept by the power of God. Oh, glory to God, I'm kept. I'm kept by the power of God. I know who I am. I have the seal of the Holy Ghost upon my heart. I'm kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. I have assurance of his grace. Assurance of his salvation. I carry his seal upon my heart. Oh, I'm kept by the power of God. Glory to God. I'm kept. I'm kept. I'm kept. I want you to stand up wherever you are. Pray in the spirit right now. Oh, I'm kept. I'm preserved. I'm kept. I'm preserved. I'm kept. I'm preserved. Glambongra Zuse Keveni and the Zuse Kevegia. Runde Rebede Gibakaya. Zutakabaya. Balandong Rezos de Vegigas. Latorinde Shatakaba. Kurakasoste. Glory to God. I'm kept. Thank you, Father. Listen, He didn't go out of His way to give you assurance for you to still be scared. Embrace His provision. Declare what he has said about you. Oh, I carry his seal upon my heart. Just worship him right now. Give him the praise. Give him the praise. Worship him right now. Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. Listen, we're not teaching this for doctrine's sake. We're teaching this for glory's sake. To glorify God and his walk in his Christ. If he has given us assurance, we must boldly receive it. Thank him for it. Announce it to the world. Hallelujah. Don't waste his provision. Don't get on that boat trip, that, that boat cruise. And, don't, and you don't take advantage of all that he has provided for you. We're in a boat cruise in this world. And there are provisions. You can be bold. You can be assured of your destination. Take advantage of your provision in Christ. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. Were you blessed? Oh, glory. Give him praise right now. Thank you, Jesus. I'm kept by the power of God. Do you believe that? Glory be to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Worship him one more time. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.